welcome to the second season of our Triune Pod. We are still preparing you to praise. Join me, the Reverend Nick Comiskey, and the Reverend Bendy Hart for a conversation about low-key theology, lived experience, and often unrelated pop culture as we break down one of the Psalms. We hope it's an inspiring, maybe a bit irreverent, but mostly helpful way to get you ready for some God time. Watch the verdict, Paul Newman joint Friday night and Triangle of Sadness in movie theaters Saturday night. Do you recommend both? I do. Yeah, they're pretty different movies, but you know, both movies made for adults. Uh, one is comedy, one's more of a drama, but I enjoyed them. You're such a dad made for adults. He'd never say that before he was a father. Well, I'm just talking about like not Marvel. You know, that's another way of saying it's not a Marvel. <laughs> You're like, this is not PG. No, I mean like adult concerns, not like superheroes. Well, don't worry, folks. We're not talking about movies for Unrelated this time. I have a very serious question that I've actually thought about for the past week. And I wanted to text Nick this question. And I have not prepped him for this. So don't hold it against him. I see a lot of times in the scriptures, especially the gospels, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. And a lot of my, the pastors I had growing up said this or that usually explained it away. My question for you is, is your faith has made you well, similar to what the law of attraction is. It's kind of like, you're actually believing it's going to happen and therefore it's going to happen. What do you make of that? Oof. Um, <laughs> it's a great question. Uh, I mean, I, I like what you said about not trying to explain it away. I mean, I do think that there is a degree to which our imagination and desire and anticipation for God to do something seems to be correlated with it happening. So mm -hmm. as a matter of practice, you never want to put someone's lack of healing on their lack of faith. Obviously, that's like, 100%. you know, malpractice. But it does seem like there's a text, I forget what gospel, but there's a text where it talks about God's power being present to heal but the people not believing. So, it, you know, it does make it seem like at least in the immediate response to Jesus and his physical presence, a receptivity and openness to what he was doing did have some correlation to what people experienced. So I don't think it's unfair to extrapolate from that. Like, yeah, maybe there is some connection between our faith and what we experience in the grace of God. Faith itself is a gift, of course. So it's not like in the moment you decide to believe and then God rewards you. So that's not exactly what I would say, but there does seem to be more of like an habituated notion, like sense of faith and expectation that yeah, it probably does have something to do with it. I saw a therapist in New York City and he told me, man, I think you lack faith. And the way he understood it really was like a true belief that I guess, simplistically, all shall be well. Yeah. And I guess what I'm always trying to with non-religious parents, non-religious friends, when they talk about things like I'm attracting something and Ben or whoever you are, like, don't be such a downer because, you know, you got to attract it. Now, I think that could be really toxic. But I find it helpful to find points of reference between non-Christians and Christians. And at times I want to be kind of like, oh yeah, like, well, that new idea you come up with is 
like what Jesus says, your faith. What is, I don't, I don't know what you mean by law of attraction. You mean like, like I'm going to manifest this by like acting. Oh like yeah. Yeah. So it's okay. like that, uh, that book, the secret that came out that, I mean, it's not talking about something brand new. It's the way to manifest your job is to really believe you're going to get it and throw out all that negative stuff. But I found it interesting when I read passages, like when Jesus says, your faith has made you well, I think you and I would both be very quick to say agency resides with God. Yeah. But also there, and maybe it's really just a psychological thing. I'm like, if you think you're not going to get that job, you're not going to get it. Yeah. You can also see how this could be used in terrible ways. If you watch that WeWork show, the We Crash, the combination of uh, <laughs> spirituality with lots of greed. Totally. Um, so obviously it can be used for terrible things, but- I don't know. I'm, and even just in my own life, like I'm such a Debbie Downer, cynical, prepare for worst case scenario to guard my heart kind of person. And does Jesus have a word for me with your faith has made you will? I don't want to make that a guilt thing or put too much weight on that. I'm more thinking in terms of how to connect with the way Christian adjacent or just non-Christian are talking about things that touch them and how we might be able to say it in an even more sophisticated way. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I do think, yeah, I think there's something there. Obviously for Christians, it's the object that our faith is in um, that is more determinative than like the quality of our faith. Like you can believe with every fiber of your being that if you jump out of an airplane, you will land in some substance that will not kill you. You can have very little faith that the parachute is going to work, but it's a parachute. You know what I mean? Like, so I think, but yeah, I think there's something to that. I mean, it's hard to say that that's a particularly Christian idea, but that seems undeniably true that like people who talk about how hard things are for them are the time experience life is predominantly hard <laughs> and people that try to find the goodness and even difficult things tend to have a much more positive affirming disposition. So yeah, that's undeniably true. Yeah. I've never thought about that, that kind of faithful. That's a cool connection. I guess I, I mean, picking up on something we talked about two weeks ago about the interest in Halloween and spiritual things, maybe that's just aesthetic interest. Maybe it's a spiritual, but yeah, no people who talk about the law of attraction and the friend I'm thinking of is very secular. Nevertheless, there's this kind of spiritual yeah. component to this belief or whatever you want to call it. And then so for us, can we make connections there? I like it. That's, That's cool. It. That's good, man. All right. To something completely unrelated, we're going to read a section of Psalm 119. And this is the longest Psalm of all the Psalms in the Old Testament. We are only going to read, I believe, seven verses. It's 137 through 144. And it goes like this. You are righteous, O Lord and upright are your judgments. You have issued your decrees with justice and in perfect faithfulness. My indignation has consumed me because my enemies forget your words. Your word has been tested to the uttermost, and your servant holds it dear. I am small and of little account, yet I do not forget your commandments. Your justice is an everlasting justice, and your law is the truth. Trouble and distress have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. The righteousness of your decrees is everlasting. Grant me understanding that I may live. Take it away, Nick. Well, I'll start with just some background. So as you said, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Psalter. It is 176 verses in total. And the psalm is an acrostic. So every letter of the Hebrew alphabet gets its own eight verse section in Psalm 119 in the way our English Bibles notate it. So 22 letters in the alphabet, 
each letter gets eight verses. That's 176 verses. And it is a very daunting psalm to try and make your way through, um, especially because it is about one very central theme. It's a praise of God's teaching or God's law or God's decrees, God's judgments, God's commandments. There's all these different synonyms that are maybe not synonyms in the Hebrew. I frankly don't know. But um, the psalm as a whole is this dance with the instruction teaching of God. And it all centers on the way that God's word is salutary and truthful and the way that embracing and living in step with God's word leads to delight and goodness and beauty and truth in the obedient person. So it's a complicated psalm in many respects for Christians who read Paul's critiques of life by law in places like Galatians 3 and Romans chapter 8. And we could get into that a little bit, but we've talked in and around that subject before. I think as a general picture, Psalm 119 is this celebration of God's law. And there's like these great little verses that jump out that people know, even if they don't know, like your, thy word is a lantern unto my feet, a light unto my path. That's from Psalm 119. But I think as a general picture, it's a celebration of God's teaching, God's instruction. So before we get into this specific Psalm and what it has to say about God's law, any thoughts about the law as a whole or Psalm 119 as a whole? I remember Eugene Peterson talked about how for the longest time he hated this psalm and then kind of came around later in life when he realized, okay, I don't have to worry about a God condemning me. I don't have to worry about the law being that word that's going to send me to hell. I'm going to read this as the path to life. We're all going to fall short. But if only we could live up to this law, if only we could do it and one day we will do it. You know, there's there's a major interpretive decision you have to make when you're approaching a psalm like this. There's not one right way. I think it's great to read this psalm like Jewish readers or like a lot of Christian readers read it as the picture of a human life lived in conformity with God's teaching, God's way, God's commands. And so this psalm can be in many ways an invitation to pray, God, I want to be upright like your judgments are upright. You know, use Psalm 137 to be a supplication or Verse 143, trouble and distress have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. We can read that as, well, God, your commandments aren't really my delight, but I would like them to be. So make it so, Lord. You know, I think that's a very appropriate way to read this psalm as kind of an instruction for the redeemed. I think another way of reading the psalms, and specifically Psalm 119, is to think about it in light of what Paul says in Romans 10, verse 4. He says, Christ is the culmination of the law. The law is something that is constantly pointing us to Jesus. And to frame that pointing positively, I think the Psalms paint a portrait of Jesus's piety, Jesus's spirituality. And so one way to read the Psalms is to read them as something that, that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone could truly and honestly say. And so mm -hmm. the Psalms give you kind of a window into Jesus's inner life before the father. So just imagine Jesus saying, you are righteous, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. You have issued your decrees with justice and in perfect faithfulness. We very often experience the Bible as burdensome, confusing, opaque, even offensive. And I think that's because we have finite capacity to understand it. And because we're sinners and the law kills and we don't want to be killed. But Jesus 
had this perfect relationship with the law of God because Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of God. And so I like to read Psalms like this, you know, your word has been tested to the uttermost and your servant holds it dear. Just imagine Jesus in Luke four being tempted, relying on God's law to ward off the tempter, you know, Satan. Does that make sense? Does that connect to you that these Psalms kind of paint a portrait of Jesus's life before the father? And so it reveals his character and draws us to him. I actually, I like that a lot because 139, which you didn't read, my indignation has consumed me because my enemies forget your words. When I read that outside of the mouth of Jesus, I think of some annoying, self-righteous person. Totally. Everyone else is doing all the wrong things. I'm the only one who's right. But if we're talking about Jesus here, what does Jesus do with his enemies? Yeah. He's not casting them to hell. He's not hating them. He's dying for them. Sure. Sin is not negligible. It's it's not good for us. It yeah. Kills us. Yeah. should be indignant. But otherwise, it does. It seems like one of those people on Twitter who's like, here's everything that's wrong with American Christianity and why I'm right. Whereas right. here, this is the one who's going to give us life. Yeah. Who's merciful. Yeah. I mean, the gospels, you know, the historical accounts of Jesus's life give us very little insight into his personality. You know, we, we see a lot about him by virtue of the actions that are recorded. And there are a few different texts that point to Jesus's inner life to some degree or another, but we're often left very much in the dark about what he was thinking or feeling in any given moment. And it is admittedly an imaginative leap, but I think it's a biblically imaginative leap to say, well, Jesus was reciting the Psalms all the time. He's quoting the Psalms all the time. He was raised with the prayer book of Israel would just pour forth from his lips, you know, because it was imprinted on his soul. And so, yeah, I mean, trouble and distress have come upon me imagining Jesus his disciples have abandoned him. He's in the garden of Gethsemane, weighing the cost of going to the cross. Trouble and distress have come upon me, yet your commandments, Father, are my delight. Like Hebrews, it's quoting some Psalm, I delight to do your will, O God. That idea that we get in this Psalm, a picture of what our Lord was like and what was on his mind as he navigated the pressures and complexities and challenges of his vocation, even something like this, I am small, this is verse 141, I am small and of little account, yet I do not forget your commandments. For most of Jesus' life, he was completely anonymous. You know, the Lord of heaven and earth, apprentice to a carpenter in some armpit of Palestine. Imagine him saying Psalm 141, identifying with the meek and poor of Israel and orienting himself towards obeying the father, even if his vocation at that time was small, quote unquote, and of little account. You know, you could do that with every verse in this Psalm. And I'm not saying that you could only read the Psalm in this way or that there's nothing in reading it as an instruction for the, the redeemed, but I think at least I was inspired as preparing. I'm like, well, let's just think about this as a window into Jesus's inner life. And Jesus holds the word of God dear. Jesus never forgot God's commandments. He delighted in them and he lived because God graced him with understanding. I don't know. There's all these different ways to read yeah. it, but I like it. Even if you want to read it more than that way, trouble and distress have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. That's what I want to be true. I, it's pointing to a life of integrity, right? A life where I don't capitulate just because things have gotten tough or because I'm experiencing persecution or this or that. Jesus, we see, did not capitulate. I don't want to. I yeah. do all the time, but there will be a day when I won't. And then verse 144, the righteousness of your decrees is everlasting. Kind of saying, Lord, in the best way possible, you don't change. You're for us no matter what. 
grant me understanding that I might live. Mm. I need to be granted understanding every single day. And I wish it was more which way to turn left or right. And it's not usually that because God trusts me too much, I guess. (laughs) But when you take the, as Peterson said, the condemnation that for whatever reason is just in our minds when we read these texts, when you take that out, this not only becomes good news because this is what Jesus did on our behalf, but a picture of, as we've said time and time again, the life we really want, the good life. Yeah, I mean, we've have both really enjoyed and been shaped in many ways by the work of the scholar Philip Carey, who writes about Luther and Augustine and Calvin, and is just very interested in how these great thinkers of the church have thought about the gospel and thought about the way the gospel shapes our Christian lives. Philip Carey has this idea that sermons and theology is supposed to be like a song that you get stuck in your head and it, a song that you like <laughs> that gets stuck in your head. Not that terrible. You're warm. <laughs> no, no, no. Hey, um, and, and so I think about this when I, whether it's teaching or preaching or just the way I, I construe and conceive of and, and talk about my faith, it's like the older I get, the less interested I am in practical guidance and the more interested I am in just having someone portray to me the beauty of who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. And I want to just be drawn to him like an effective, like an A, effective like compass where I'm just oriented towards the beauty of God as it's revealed in Christ. And I think if Jesus is the one whom I love and am drawn to, questions about how to handle my finances or my social media habits, like that stuff's important, but it's so far downstream from like what you most love. And so Mm -hmm. like, don't talk to me about my social media habits. I want to fall more in love with Jesus. (laughs) Like that's, what's actually going to help me. I do need some of that practical guidance at some point, but that's just like the period the sentence is what's going to make my heart sing. And I think when you reverse order and you kind of make the main thing, the practical, and you kind of just try and say, well, you should want to do this because of what Jesus did for you. It's like, well, could you tell me a little bit more about that then <laughs> about the, what you think, you know, I'm not trying to be polemical. I've, there's no one in my imagination that I'm talking to right now. I'm just saying in general, the way that the scripture can portray for us the beauty of God as it's revealed in Christ. Like that's always going to be more interesting to me than like, how then shall you live kind of stuff. And this is the subject of Nick Kamiski's first book that I've been trying to get him to write <laughs> for like five years. Dude, so, be, people ask me that sometimes like, oh man, you know, probably because I'm pretentious and use like very pretentious words. People are like, you kind of seem like the kind of guy who wants to write a book. I don't know always if it's a compliment, but what I always say to people is like to write a book, you have to like hustle, man. You know, you don't get a book published because you're a good writer. You get a book published because you have a lot of followers on TikTok. And and we just heard he doesn't care about his social media presence. I don't want to do stuff like that. So anyway, um, this is Psalm 119, verse 137 through 144. Hear it as a portrait of Jesus's life before the Father. You are righteous, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. You have issued your decrees with justice and in perfect faithfulness. My indignation has consumed me because my enemies forget your words. Your word has been tested to the uttermost and your servant holds it dear. I am small and of little account, yet I do not forget your commandments. Your justice is an everlasting justice and your law is the truth. Trouble and distress have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. The righteousness of your decrees is everlasting. Grant me understanding that I may live.
How about that episode of Our Trying Pod? Now that you've been prepped for praise, won't you do us a solid and subscribe and review? We promise to keep the outlandish illustrations coming. So be sure to join us for another episode of your absolute favorite podcast.